Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Elle, and my pronouns are also she, her. In this episode, we'll discuss the fourth Sunday of Easter, which this year falls on April 25th. For content notifications for this episode, we wanted to let you know that we discuss arrest, police brutality, and the carceral system in the deep dive. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Our deep dive today is on abolition, justice, and faith with our special guest, Elle Dowd. Elle is an author, community organizer, and candidate for ministry in the ELCA. She is publishing a book with Broadleaf set for release in August 2021 titled Baptized in Tear Gas from White Moderate to Abolitionist. So, Elle, you have a book coming out. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Uh, Baptized in Tear Gas from White Moderate to Abolitionist is going to be released August 10th, which is actually the day after the anniversary of the murder of Mike Brown by white police officer Darren Wilson. The book's going to be available August 10th, but it's available for pre-order now. And all of the money that I would make from this book goes to black activists, liberation organizations, political prisoners, bail funds, and people who have lost loved ones to state violence. And basically the book is my own conversion experience. It's my story about how God changed me from being a white girl who grew up in the suburbs of Des Moines, Iowa, who was pretty much the very definition of what MLK called the white moderate in his letter from a Birmingham jail. And that transformation into an Asata Shakur reading, courthouse occupying, abolitionist with an arrest record, hungry for the revolution. It's part memoir and part theological reflection, part love letters to the activists and people I met there who changed me, and definitely a lot of challenge for the church, and a lot of uh, my own confessions of my own personal feelings as I joined the movements and the things that I, I learned and the things I still struggle with today. So it's called Baptized in Tear Gas because in baptism, in Lutheranism, we say that in baptism, we it's like as if we died and we are being reborn. And this book is about the things that had to die in me, like mm. my clinging to respectability politics or tone policing or paternalism or other aspects of white supremacy. Those things had to die in me so that something new can be born. And just like in baptism, it's a, it's a daily dying and rising and a lifelong commitment. That's really beautiful. I think yeah. when I've talked to, like learned and talked about also in the Lutheran tradition, as our listeners know, death and resurrection and the the daily dying of baptism, it's so frequently... And rising. And rising. Um, but it's so frequently, like, it's, like, sectioned off into the space of, like, dying because I was mean to this person or because I didn't recycle or, like, those... The things that are very much, like, personal piety yeah. type of practices and less so... The larger, like, what does it mean to, like, respectability politics as a tool of oppression? Mm -hmm. And how do I die to wanting everyone to like me? Yeah. Yeah. Like those, yeah. There's so many just, like, really great images that we have for baptism. And, you know, baptism is an initiation, right? Right? Like, it's like a, mm -hmm. a thing. Or at least, you know, most of the time. It, it acts as an initiation, right, for people into the church. Um, but... Ideally, it's not like 
even though it might be a one day event initiation, right? It's really supposed to be a lifelong journey that's only completed at the time that our time on earth is through. And so I really think about my own personal conversion towards anti-racism and abolition that way too. Like there were definite moments that initiated me into this movement. And at the same time, it is a lifelong commitment. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, one day I woke up and I'm like, cool, I've got it figured out. I'm an anti-racist. I'm an abolitionist. I practice those principles every day. Like that's not true at all. It's, it's an ongoing, ongoing journey. Mm-hmm. So you talk about being an abolitionist and I'm curious, like what does abolition mean? What does it mean to be an abolitionist? I think for the, when I was growing up, the only context I had for that was the abolition of slavery, Yes, supposedly in 1860. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so like for, for many frameworks, there's kind of like a lot of different ways to answer this question, like what is abolition? Um, and there's like a lot of different models for what abolition would look like because abolition is all about community control. So in different contexts, it'll sort of show up in different ways. And a lot of times, I will say though, that a lot of times we sort of think of abolition as getting rid of something, right? Like getting rid of police and getting rid of prisons, like flinging open the prisons and letting everybody out. And, um, you know, that's kind of true, uh, but it's really only a very small part of the picture because abolition is not just about, you know, getting rid of public safety or accountability or something. It's not about throwing up and open these jail doors and then tomorrow we just assume everything is going to be fine. Abolition is actually about building a new world where we actually get to the root cause of issues and we try to figure out a way for us all to have what we need to thrive and find creative and construction ways to constructive ways to move forward together and find solutions when things do go wrong. So you might have heard a little bit about the movement to defund the police after the uprisings this summer in the wake of George Floyd's death. And not everyone who wants to defund the police is an abolitionist. Some people are more kind of about shrinking the the police with with defunding Mm -hmm. the police. But a lot of us who want to defund the police, it's kind of like with our eye on abolition, defund the police as a step towards abolition. And, And the idea of defunding the police is part of an abolitionist framework. It originated in an abolitionist framework, sort of, defund, disarm, dismantle, disband. So with defunding the police, the idea is that we take the budget of the police, which in many places is millions or even billions of dollars. So I live in Chicago Mm -hmm. where we spend almost half of our city budget on police, which is over $5 million per day on police alone and and more on our prisons. Um, And the hope is that when we defund these systems, we can put money into the things that actually prevent crime, like education, and mental health care and social services. And the architects of the abolition movement, this current contemporary abolition movement are black women. And there's like a lot of, of different black women who have had a lot of, done a lot of really great work on abolition. Uh, but I wanna lift up particularly Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Angela Davis. They've been working towards abolition for decades. So you might be aware of Dr. Angela Davis. Mm-hmm. She was in the Black Panther Party in the 70s, and now she's a professor and an author. She's an attorney. And she has a book I really highly recommend, and it's a really quick read that's uh, called Our Prisons Obsolete. But mm-hmm. abolition is, is really exciting to me because this framework can be applied in so many different ways. 
because the the idea of abolition is is a is a positive strategy, right? It's about presence, not absence. It's about building something. That means that a lot of the work we do, if, if we do it with an abolitionist framework, can be can be abolitionist. So all of these issues are related. Like Audre Lorde says, we don't lead single issue lives. So for example, I'm working on a campaign right now about water affordability, and you might think, well, what does that have to do with the police or prisons? But the fact is in Chicago, when people get their water turned off because they can't afford their water bill, if they can't get it turned back on within 24 hours, they get evicted from their house because it's con- it's considered inhabitable. Like you can't live there. So they kick you out, right. which means, you know, what do you think happens to people when they get ca- kicked out of their homes? They lose their jobs. Sometimes they lose their kids. They end up in desperate situations. A lot of them end up incarcerated. And so that's one of the examples of how the work that we do around things like water access, right? Or and environmental racism can be abolitionist. Abolitionist is anti-capitalist because it, it values the inherent dignity of all people and doesn't try to exploit their labor the way that prisons and policing do. It's mm-hmm. obviously anti-racist because it notices the way that police and prisons target black and brown and indigenous people in particular. And abolitionist feminist. I think a lot of times the first question I hear about abolition is, you know, what about people who cause harm with sexual violence? And uh, as a survivor of sexual violence, it has been really important to me to note that the architects of the abolition movement are almost all survivors, right? These, are, we, you know, abolitionists are people who just think that these, these things don't happen. And for myself, speaking as a survivor, I know that in my situation, I didn't feel like I found justice and I didn't feel that the carceral system would provide me with justice. And what abolition does is it focuses on building strong communities that actually centers the rights and needs and wants of victims and survivors instead of incorporating this punishment system that is inherently really patriarchal. So the last thing I'll say about abolition, I mean, maybe probably not, I'll probably talk a lot more about (laughs) abolition, but right now (laughs) is that abolition is also really relational. It is all about knowing your community, knowing your neighbors, knowing your neighborhood, relying on each other, being in right relationship with each other. So safety and justice and wholeness are the sort of things that can only be realized when we're on authentic, uh, deep relationships with our neighbors. And so in that way, I just see so many connections, obviously, to community organizing, but even more obviously, maybe for some people listening to ministry, which at its best is supposed to also be about being in relationship with each other, knowing each other deeply and caring about the conditions of each other's lives and, and finding a way to provide for one another. Yeah. And in fact, with all of your comments about the relational nature of abolition, it really sounds like abolition meets so many of the ideals that the Midwest in particular tries to lift itself up uh, and and say that you can find that here when you can't necessarily find it elsewhere in the country. Uh, the, the knowing your neighbors mm-hmm. and uh, having good relationships with them and all, all that. Yeah, yeah. Another cool thing about abolition is that it's really, um, it's not like you go to bed one night and you wake up and, and it's abolition, <laughs> you know, it's, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a practice. It's the sort of things that we practice every day. And so something really important, I think, about advancing abolition is noticing actually the ways that we are already practicing it so that we have ways to expand on that. So for example, kind Midwest, you know, maybe even white suburbanites or whatever who know their neighbors, love their neighbors and who bring over, you know, casseroles when someone dies or who whatever, you know, like help watch the dog, have a key to the neighbor's Mm -hmm. house in case you get locked out. Like 
maybe folks wouldn't call themselves abolitionists yet, but like those are abolitionist practices. It's, it's all about those relationships. Mm-hmm. My dad grew up with two brothers and the three of them between them wound up uh, breaking several neighbors' windows over the years. And yet the police were never called. They always went over and dealt with it with their neighbors personally, uh, usually, you know, with their parents leading the way, to be fair. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because there's something about, um, you know, we know that our our prison system and policing doesn't actually work, right? It doesn't deliver Mm -hmm. on the promises that it makes. There's this idea or narrative that more police make us safe, incarceration makes us safe. But the, the data really shows that the safest neighborhoods are not the ones that have more people incarcerated or not the ones that have heavy police presence. In fact, that's the opposite. Those communities are less safe. The most safe places are the places where everyone has resources and where people care for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of stories uh, in the Bible, including both our Acts reading and our John reading for today, that are connected to criminal justice or policing or arrests in some way or another. Uh, in our Acts reading today, Peter and John uh, were just arrested. And in John, we are in Jesus's final discourse, the night of his arrest and before his death. Uh, so how has your engagement with passages like this in the Bible changed or shifted as you've experienced being baptized in tear deaths? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I tell this story a lot because this story has happened a lot. But sometimes when I talk about, for example, Jesus being arrested or Jesus being beaten by the cops or other stories of script in scripture that have to do with arrest or incarceration or state violence, I have people who grew up in the church their whole lives, maybe even are like the sort of people who read their Bible every day who are like, whoa, I never realized that Jesus was arrested. I never realized that Jesus was a a victim of police brutality. And it's right there, right? Like this isn't even us like sort of projecting or like informing or like translating to our current situation or reality. Like the words like arrest and police are in there. Yeah. But the fact is in a lot of mainline denominations and, you know, white Christianity in the United States, we've done this thing where we really depoliticize scripture. We sort of try to remove scripture and these stories from their original time and place in their political and social context And we really hyper-spiritualize it, right? Like Jesus, this is an example about Jesus. Jesus came to save us from like the fires of hell or Jesus came to make sure we'd go to heaven as opposed to uh, Jesus having and and Jesus's life, death and resurrection having something to really say about us in our bodies here with our feet on the ground in the earth and our material reality, our physical reality. And so when we really hyper-spiritualize things and sort of pluck them out of their context like that, it makes it a lot harder for us to realize and recognize those same things happening in our own time. So uh, I think that's on purpose, right? Because um, mm-hmm. who, yeah. who benefits from that? Like the point is for us to not look critically at, and do more power analysis and not look critically at, at people who, who wield power and for us to sort of just like accept the, the pie in the sky and sweet by and by sort of theology that tells us things will get better later or whatever, right? And to, and to not rock the boat and to not be rude or something. But when I read the Bible now, um, especially after spending time in, in the Ferguson uprising, and especially also after reading things like Dr. James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree, I read intentionally with a lot more power analysis. But another sort of side benefit has been that the characters seem a lot more real to me, right? I used to read these stories and it just, I don't know, the people didn't seem real or relatable or like people that I knew. 
But now mm-hmm. that I'm in deep relationships with other community organizers and I'm, I spend time out on the streets with them and in endless meetings because community organizing is 95% meetings. Yep. <laughs> I know it, it kind of gets painted as this like glamorous, like, I don't know, we're like Katniss Everdeen and it's like very sexy or something, but really it's just mostly like Google calendar invites. But strangely, the same thing is true. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But yeah, now that I've, you know, been out in the streets with people or, or in, or in meetings with people, I read these characters in scripture and I'm like, whoa, like I can imagine how this went down. You know, like I used to read, for example, the story of the arrest of John the Baptist and be like, oh, weird. That's kind of annoying or strange or that's too bad that happened or something. Yeah, that seems kind of random. That seems kind of, why did that happen? And now I read it like John the Baptist initiated Jesus into this movement of spiritual renewal. Jesus goes off into the desert, comes back, hears that his mentor and cousin and comrade has been targeted, criminalized and hauled off to jail and that radicalizes Jesus enough to start his own ministry, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I can see the yeah. cause and effect because of the power analysis. And it can make me imagine like, oh, maybe John's arrest like radicalized Jesus. Hmm. What are the things that radicalized me or radicalized people in my life? And, and it frequently is the harm that happens to our, um, you know, people that we love, right? Like me seeing what happened in Ferguson and thinking about my own daughters who are now black teenagers, like that radicalized me. And so I can really relate more to these characters as real people. Yeah. That, yeah, I think about that. And I I was arrested this last summer in the protests. And to think about this year in particular during Holy Week when we were doing, we had um, Jessica Davis on for our Good Friday episode. Mm-hmm. And... Pastor Lenny Duncan on for Palm Passion Sunday. And so between the two of them, there is such, I think it was Pastor Lenny who also mentioned John radicalizing Jesus, John's arrest radicalizing Jesus. But to look at that parallel analysis and to look at like, when I, when I read about, right, Peter cutting off, like drawing the sword and cutting off the slave's ear, it was a very different experience for me to be like, okay, giant mob of scary police Mm -hmm. coming at us and I've been in that situation now in a way that I hadn't before and and I don't blame Peter for doing that right right I think too like we um those of us who are white or those of us who have don't have sort of like personal experience with the with the carceral system right I know I was surprised after I had been arrested the first time I was surprised how traumatic it was and how violating it was. Um, And my arrest was nothing compared to many arrests, right? Like I Mm -hmm. am covered in so much privilege and this was my first arrest was in the middle of the day and it was a multiracial group of many clergy people and the media was there, right? So like how many layers of protection? I'm like a young, you know, nice white lady or whatever. Um, And and that arrest was traumatic. And so I, and I was there for only a few hours in jail, right? And so I think we really, because many of us are so removed, we can really like sanitize these stories and think about, you know, even if Jesus had only been arrested and not beaten and not executed, like that's a big freaking deal. Like that is, it, it's a total yeah. loss of control of bodily autonomy. It's totally dehumanizing. So really like the layers that this adds, and of course, you know, 
black folks, indigenous folks, other people of color who have, have had, or, or people in general who have had more experience with our carceral system, like this isn't news, right? Like they know the way that their communities have been disrupted and they've seen the harm firsthand. And so that's a way that as white folks, um, and particularly white folks who don't have much, you know, experience with the criminal justice system, justice in air quotes, like we really, these folks are our teachers, people who have been incarcerated, you know, people of color are our teachers on this and they can really help us to see things and notice things in scripture that we wouldn't see ourselves. It's, it just it continues to amaze me the number of people respond to the idea that the criminal justice system is unjust by saying, well, if you just complied, if you just did what the police yeah. said, then you'd be fine. Well, if you work the idea that the criminal justice system is not just into that, then maybe you won't be fine comply. Mm -hmm. And actually, we have historical record of many, many, many people for whom that was mm -hmm. true. And yes, some of them did already have arrest records. And let's apply that to those arrest records as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. I think my whole viewpoint changed when I realized it's this two-way thing that's happening, right? On the one hand, people of color um, and the poor and people who are you know, trans or people who are disabled or, you know, various other people and, and populations and groups that are targeted by the police. It is not only that like these laws exist and then they're sort of disproportionately applied to certain groups. That's true. But even sort of the other direction, these laws were written on purpose to purposefully criminalize groups so that they were easier yeah. to be targeted. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just like, oh, we wrote, wrote these laws and they're sort of neutral, but then the application is unjust. It's like, you know, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow does a really good job um, talking about this, about how our criminal justice system purposefully creates a criminal underclass, purposefully tries to criminalize whole groups of people by creating a whole web of a system that targets them from the beginning. Yeah. And I think that the other piece of that, that I, that just, it has taken me a while of living in the Midwest and being around like white Midwesterners mm -hmm. in a particular way to, to get to the third piece of it, which is you don't obey the laws. Right. Right. <laughs> like literally. Right. I mean, we have. They really don't. We really don't. I mean, in the last like couple of months, we had a police officer with the Des Moines police who was arrested because he was trying to interfere in, like, his girlfriend's arrest or something, like, was trying to mm -hmm. intervene. We have police who are, like, de-escalation trainers who were got in trouble for using excessive force multiple times. Mm -hmm. But it's also the, like, white suburban folks, which right. is me right now, who drive above the speed limit, mm -hmm. who yeah maybe have a drink at a bar and then drive home mm -hmm. and yeah. that may or may not like may or may not be past Super. the legal limit and also if they were a person of color they're that yeah. much more likely to get arrested or who have tail lights that are out right yeah yeah or who pull pranks or mm -hmm. uh, break into the homes of their ex or their family members or whatever and expect that they'll get off because it's not a big mm -hmm. deal and yet if they were a person of color they could have gotten shot yeah. for that. Yeah, I think about, you know, like I grew up in the suburbs and we did a lot of like, you know, TPing houses, right? Like putting mm, toilet paper yeah. in trees and on houses like as like a prank, right? And nobody was calling me and my friends 
animals and justifying, you know, people harming us because we quote unquote destroyed property, right? Um, and yet that happens all the time because our system places a value on property over, over people, particularly when those people are part of a marginalized class. Mm-hmm. Diving into our readings, our Acts reading, our first reading for this episode is Acts chapter 4 verses 5 through 12. Peter and John were just arrested for healing in Jesus' name. And then Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim salvation to the religious authorities gathered. Yeah, I love Acts. Acts is a wild ride. I feel like growing up, I didn't pay enough attention to Acts. And it's probably because of this depolitization that I experienced in my church um, of origin growing up, my home church. But like the story is so wild because it's like, not that long ago that Peter and John and other people literally witnessed their friend and their teacher and their leader and their, and their comrade being killed in like a horribly violent way, right? And we remember from Good Friday that Peter was like afraid that he was going to be next and so did the whole, you know, denying Jesus three times thing, right? So like mm-hmm. Peter... Uh, maybe justifiably so, but was like, you know, a little bit of a scaredy cat or coward or whatever. And then we get this totally different Peter in Acts who's like marching right back up to Jerusalem, right back up to that same, you know, city where all of this happened, where the same people who targeted his, you know, Jesus's movement that Peter is a part of, the same people who like criminalized their leader and arrested and brutalized him and murdered him, Like Peter walks like right back up to them and then totally to the seat of power where, you know, it's like the same characters are in play, right? It's Caiaphas again and and Annas and Mm -hmm. like he just goes right in there preaching and teaching and obviously it causes a a commotion. And so then they're arrested. People in authority did the thing that they always do when they feel like some like riffraff or outside agitators are disturbing the peace because they would be outside agitators, right? They're, They're Galileans. And so they, they locked them up and they put, they put Peter and John in prison, but the story is so cool because, um, the, the powers and principalities couldn't stop them. And I think about Fred Hampton, who has that famous quote, you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail the revolution. And Mm -hmm. later on outside of this, you know, small part of the story that we, that we read this week, scripture tells us that 5,000 people joined the movement that day, 5,000 people join the church. So you see like, it's just like such a powerful story to me. Another conversion story, right? Like this guy, we'll talk about Peter. John is all, you know, John was there too. My thing about Peter in particular, who was like a coward denying Jesus. And then now turned into this person was converted, transformed into this person that would march up to the seat of power, right? To the people who had just harmed and, and killed and, and hurt someone that he loved in a super traumatic way go like right up there and like stand up to them. Right. And say, you know, they're like, who gives you the authority to do this? And they're like, Jesus, the one you killed. Yeah. But God raised him like, holy, like, like what happened to Peter that he was transformed. And the only way that someone would turn from the sort of person who's like, wait, Jesus, who, I don't know that guy into like, yeah, whose authority am I doing this by? Jesus says, remember when you tried to kill him? Well, he's back. And now I'm doing this in his name. Like the only way you'd see that sort of transformation in a person is, is they experience something just totally life changing, like, you know, the resurrected Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I really love that way of understanding it. Because I think when, when we've talked about acts in the past, I think 
it's a lot of like, there are conversion stories, right? Because it's the early church and building up the church. And it would be easy to focus, right, on the 5,000 people. But the story is that is most gripping is this person that we've journeyed with through the Gospels into Acts who has had such a big transformation. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And the reason why the 5,000 join is because of all the stuff that happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Right. Like yeah. It's, if, if Peter hadn't and John hadn't been so bold and hadn't like gone to that place and been so brave and, you know, healed people and, and had been preaching, like, you know, if this like had been happening in secret or something, like nobody would have paid attention really. You know, it's, it's because the, first of all, because people knew about it, but also because like, wow, like, you know, what's a compelling story is someone who believes what they believe so much that they're like, yeah, lock me up and I'm still not going to back down. Like that's a really, really powerful story. Yeah. I think about the different places where that's happened. The places like in real life are connected to water for me. So both the folks who put water out in the Sonoran Desert for immigrants who are crossing the desert and who then have been arrested for harboring, I think it was like called harboring fugitives or something, Um, but also like the new law in Georgia for what you're allowed to give people who are standing in line waiting to vote. Um, And the, the space that it connected when I was preparing for this episode was actually in Firefly. Mm in the show Firefly, which is very, like, has its own cult following. But Summer, one of the characters, Summer and her brother, are fugitives. And Summer is, like, has a lot of trauma that she's experienced. And so her reactions and her responses are not always proportionate and not always helpful. But a lot of the time, she actually is, like, saving everybody. But there's still this, like, need to contain her Mm -hmm. and to contain the potential for her to do harm and the potential for her to do good because there's not a trust that it will, that she will do good. And so I was just thinking about that and the different ways that particularly in Firefly, there's this, what is moral is not always what is legal. Mm -hmm. And how do you navigate legality and illegality versus morality and immorality? Yeah. Tricky. Yeah. I like Firefly. And come to think of it, people lock up the gospel in the Mm -hmm. same way because it might do too much mm-hmm. it might be too revolutionary too disruptive too yeah 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 so frequently i think we talk about and this goes back to what you were saying earlier l but the like depoliticizing mm-hmm. and the most common framing that i've had is you're politicizing the gospel which is not accurate like it's it's right. putting the politics yeah. back into it right? right recognizing the politics are there yeah. but ignoring the fact that the politics were pulled out of it to begin with. I think it's because we frequently sort of like misunderstand like what politics is, you know, like we (laughs) think of politics as, I don't know, two opposing football teams and we like choose our favorite or something like, um, as opposed to politics is not just about partisanship. It's not just about, it's not even just about elections, right? Like politics is really just a word for like, how we organize our public life together. And so it's actually like, there's literally nothing in this world that's not political because everything that we do, everything that we say, every, you know, it affects other people. So the idea that somehow the gospel could be 
non-political is hilarious because first of all, nothing's non-political, but particularly not the gospel. Like if the gospel was serious enough that Jesus and many of his followers were killed by the state, then the state is a political entity, right? The state is a political entity. And so with the state being major actors, the empire being major actors in this story, like, of course the story is political. It's about political leaders. It's about governmental leaders. It's about political power. It's about the fear of losing power. Mm-hmm. I, when we, we look at the verses in particular for this passage, I was looking at the first couple of verses, verses five and six, where right, Peter and John have been arrested, as we mentioned, and then they are coming to the rulers and the elders and the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And it has this list, right? Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all of these people with all of the power to make decisions for the good of the community. And I think it's important for those of us who are Christian, especially when we're talking about the Acts readings in particular, there's a lot of like pitting Jewish people against those in the Jesus movement who become the early church. Yeah. And the reality, like there, there is a, a hard spot that they're in, right, of living under oppressed in, an, in a situation of oppression where there's a foreign government that is oppressing them and they're trying their best to protect their people, the people mm-hmm. in their care. And they are choosing the complicity with the powers in order to protect people. That's the route they're choosing and not everybody chooses that route. And clearly Peter and John are not choosing the same yeah. route. Yeah. Right. But it also reminded me of the movie The Village, which maybe I'm just still on a like horror movie bend from our last episode <laughs> with horror nerds at church and pace and joe but the movie the village there's this community that is like isolated and the council has said like is like protecting people because there are these like scary monsters out in the forest and so nobody can leave and it's like 1900s ish time frame and so there's like not great medicine and all of this stuff and the reality like spoilers for anybody who might want to go see the village is that they're protecting people from modernization. And so when somebody's really sick and they need to get out there to get medicine that will actually like save this person, there's so much that gets built up around like killing and and harming and scaring people into staying in this village where it is safe mm-hmm. because they're so afraid of the technology and the medicine that has advanced. And there's like yeah. good reason to be afraid of that. Like I am a Luddite in so many ways. But also it's inevitable and there is good that comes from it. Mm -hmm. And if we're just going to disengage completely, then we lose out on the ways that we can impact it positively. The ways that we can say, no, let's challenge the way that this is working. Let's challenge this system. But if we're just like completely disconnecting or completely complicit, both ways. I had forgotten that movie existed, but it's a really good reminder. Like this point that you're making, Emily, is a really good reminder to me that I think sometimes when we talk about, you know, people who uphold oppressive systems, it's really easy to be like, these are bad actors. These are people who are like, almost like these caricatures of like boogeymen, right? Like these are like evil people who are trying to hurt other people. When actually a lot of times they are people who are trying to make difficult decisions And they're like, think that they're doing the right thing, you know? And so that's actually Mm -hmm. like really humbling for me because how many times do I think that I'm doing the right thing? Like most of the time I try to think I'm doing the right thing, right? So it's, it's like some good, I don't know, personal reflection for those of us who, if we're in positions of, of power or influence to be like, okay, well, like what, 
what does it, what does it mean? Like, what, what are those lines? What are like the sort of red flags we can look for to see, to sort of check ourselves? Like, when are we really acting in the best interest of, of people? Um, and I think, you know, thinking of the village, like a big thing would be informed consent, right? Like the people that you are helping to lead or that you're caring for should have a say in what's going on, which means we need to know what's going on. But I also think there's something to be said too about how in these act stories, when we talk about how, you know, Caiaphas and Annas and, and these religious leaders are perhaps making choices to prop up the Roman Empire because they, they think that that's like the way to protect people. It's a really good reminder to me of the way, how important it is for us to really be clear about like what is the real enemy. And you know, like scripture would say our enemies are not of flesh and blood, right? It's like powers and, and principalities and um, or we might say systems, right? Um, but even, you know, further than that, there is sort of a, there is a ruling elite um, and a system behind them that really keeps those of us who are not a part of that, you know, very small 1% of people, the, even they're in the minority sort of numbers wise, but they keep us in the minority powers wise because they do a divide and conquer strategy. And so mm-hmm. I think about how, you know, the story in Acts is, you know, the real enemy is the Roman Empire, like in this story. The real enemy isn't the religious leaders, right, who are also part of an, inform- or an oppressed class. And obviously, I, do- I obviously don't also think that, you know, the apostles are, are the real enemies here. And so it reminds me, um, again, I think I just like bring up Fred Hampton every five seconds because I'm, <laughs> I live in Chicago and I also am just so inspired by him. But he he did this really important work of cross-racial solidarity. Like he was organizing rival gangs. He was organizing Puerto Ricans. He was organizing even like, you know, sort of poor white folks who like had Confederate flags and stuff. And he was so such a successful leader because he was able to help people um, understand and articulate to people, yeah, like actually we are being separated and, and divided and we're fighting each other because there is there are people who benefit from that and so what if we worked together to get what we need and of course that was such a threat to the system that the fbi in cooperation with the chicago police assassinated fred hampton right so it really goes to show how powerful this sort of like solidarity across these divisions how powerful that can be and how dangerous it can be to the status quo if we really do sort of work together and keep in mind like kind of eye on the prize who's the real enemy right like for me, right, as like a, a white woman um, who's queer, who experiences various forms of oppression, like my enemy isn't, you know, black folks or immigrants or any other sort of group of people that I don't belong to that, that um, you know, the sort of wider system keeps us desperate for resources and fighting over resources. And instead, the, the real enemy isn't this person that I'm sort of have this manufactured fake sense of competition with. But the people who put us in the systems that put us in that position when actually there is enough, there is enough for all of us. Yeah. That actually reminds me of the, in Hunger Games. Yes. In the second book, right? When, before Katniss goes into the arena the second time. Now I'm blanking on his name. Pita? The, what's his name? Hamish. Hamish. Yeah. Hamish is like, don't forget who the real enemy is. And it's oh, yeah. not until the very last minute in the arena where, like, the lightning is about to strike the tree, that she is, like, ready to, like, shoot one of the other people in the game Mm -hmm. and then has that voice repeated and 
moves and shoots the arena itself and causes a blackout and lets him escape and all of that stuff. But yeah. it's that particular moment of who is the actual enemy? They like the capital and the system of power and rule in the capital is the enemy, not the people that you're fighting against for survival. Right. It reminds me too of how at the end of the first book, you know, Katniss and Peeta sort of like resist the divide and conquer by being like, so if we like both say that we will take these, I don't remember what the, they're like poisonous berries or something. I don't remember what mm-hmm. they're called, but if we just like, Night you know, luck. if there is no winner, yeah. then, then what? Right. And um, so instead they had to have two winners, right? They, they found a way to beat the system by being like, let's go in together on this. We have a shared experience. We have a shared sort of self-interest or shared goals so we are more powerful together, and they were able to to outsmart the system in that way, which led to both of their survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also looked at verse six and that list of people with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Uh, basically, Peter was on trial by the same people who tried Jesus, just like we talked yeah. about earlier, and look how that yeah. turned out. And it's kind of like when you're watching a sequel and you go someplace familiar from an earlier movie, only instead of being a warm and fuzzy kind of return, like when the hobbits return to the Shire in Lord of the Rings, uh, it's much more foreboding and also a signal that things haven't really changed yet. And it reminded me of when we see the, I would think of it as the second Death Star, because when I think about these movies, I only think about the original (laughs) in Return of the Jedi. Uh, The first one was in A New Hope, and the second Death Star shows up in Return of the Jedi, and that signals that uh, Luke and the gang aren't done Mm -hmm. yet, and the system hasn't really changed yet. Our second reading today is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. God's unrelenting love is most clearly made known through Jesus' willingness to die for us. And having witnessed this love, how can we not share it with others? So one of the themes is love. Yeah. But I was I was thinking about this in particularly in light of what you were saying, Elle, at the beginning about, I don't think you used this exact phrasing, but like about not being just like the nice people. Yeah. And I have for a long time, and Kay and our listeners have heard me say it a bunch, said, I think being nice is a sin. Mm-hmm. I think being kind is not necessarily a sin, but being nice in the sense of socialized to put other people's needs over and above your own all the time or to not engage in conflict, to not speak up when something's wrong. And so when I was in seminary, one of my seminary classmates gave me the book Caring to Confront. Mm -hmm. And it's like the idea behind it is that it is in fact that we confront that we do something because of our love, not in spite of it. Yes. And so yes. I've been driving a bunch, and so I've been listening to Divergent on audiobook and just got to the part where Tris is talking about the Dauntless Manifesto and think, and like just got introduced to some parts of it. And the idea in the original Dauntless Manifesto is this great sense of like part of being dauntless and being brave is about teamwork and lifting up and supporting each other. Yeah. And it's become this more corrupt thing of every person from the, for themselves and like dangerous and trying to undermine each other. And part of what she says is she stays in dauntless and she still wants to be part of dauntless because she believes in what it can be. Yeah. Right. Because she loves it. She is willing to stay and challenge the things that are unjust and the things that are harming people. Yeah. 
I think even, so this is related to that, even choosing to like remove yourself from things can, can have a similar effect, right? It's like the, the, the confrontation is, is the caring part. I think about, this is a story from my own life actually, but there was a, a loved one of mine who had mistreated me for years, right? Like in a, in a like very serious way. And I had this realization one day that like, if something died, if something happened to this like loved one and they like died or something someday, like we're all going to die someday. If something happened to this loved one, I would have all this resentment and bitterness in my heart because I had never confronted this issue and put up a boundary. And so mm-hmm. I made a really hard decision to stop contact with this loved one for a pretty long period of time. And then other people, other loved ones in our circle supported me in doing that and then also supported holding that person accountable, right? They're like, hey, we will stay in relationship with you. Like Elle needs to Elle needs space for her own health and healing. But we'll stay in relationship with you if you will commit to your health and healing. If you'll get some therapy for goodness sakes, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you will do those things, we'll be here to encourage you and support you and hold you accountable. Um, and if you don't, we actually don't think we can be in relationship with you either. So that was really powerful. It was really powerful for me to realize that even though it was not at all nice for me to tell this person like, hey, you can't abuse me, that it was actually very kind and compassionate because instead of hating this person, this space and the support from our our community gave us the chance at a future with hopefully a real relationship, right? There was no room for reconciliation if I just played nice and said it was okay for me to be mistreated like this. But me speaking the truth gave, you know, it was hard. It didn't feel good. I'm sure this person didn't feel loved by me being like, I can't be in relationship with you right now. But for me, it was very loving because I I didn't want the sort of relationship where I secretly hated them. I wanted a relationship where we could actually care for each other and know each other. And so, you know, this is, I like to tell this story because it's, it doesn't always happen this way, right? It's not always like neat and pretty like this, but in our case, it has, you know, sort of a happy, I won't say ending because we're still in process, but it's a little bit of a quote unquote success story because this person did get therapy for years. And then me and this person entered into therapy together to sort of like confront and negotiate some of the things together. And so now we're navigating, we're in this stage now that's really full of possibility, right? Like full of possibilities that if you had asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, this would never be possible, right? This was an impossible hope to hope that I could have a real relationship with this person, to hope that we could really get to know each other and that we could, you know, interact in a way that was healthy. And so right now we're in the stage of figuring out how to do that. But it's just, um, I think about that, obviously this is a sort of interpersonal situation, but I think about that with systems too. And I think about the people who there's those of us who remain in the church to try to like dauntless, right? Like try to, (laughs) we're like, we know what you can be, you know, if you lived into these values. Um, And then there's people who leave the church. And I think leaving is a faithful option. I think it can be very loving to say, I will not allow you to treat me like this. And the way that I need to heal is, is to be away from you and maybe permanently. Right. So I, Mm -hmm. I think about that with systems too. I think about the church, but I'm sure because, you know, we're like church people, but I'm sure there's other institutions that that could also be true. Yeah. And it feels so queer to do that too, right? Like so frequently the options are stay and do nothing and say nothing and be nice Mm -hmm. or leave and say nothing and do nothing and just like ghost. And there's so many more, right? Like, which is my favorite 
hashtag false binaries. Mm-hmm. But there are so many more options, and there are those possibilities of of having space for complexity that mm-hmm. I think queer community and queer culture in particular has a, a particular capacity to do. But to say, no, we can talk about the thing that we're struggling with and we can confront about it, but also we can create the space so that other people don't get harmed. Yeah. And we have yeah. the cap- capabilities and capacity to address the harm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the online advice column, Captain Awkward, and she is particularly good at helping people go through this process. She's come up with several very clever short phrases uh, to identify different problems that everyone has in their everyday lives. And one of my favorites that she identified is the person who is the missing stare Mm -hmm. Uh, in some groups, in some churches, uh, in Mm -hmm. some organizations, there is a person who is endlessly dysfunctional and everyone just sort of accepts that that's how they are. And it's like they jump over them like you would jump over a missing Mm -hmm. stare on a staircase. And the accepted truth in that community is that that's just how that's person's going to be it's never going to change deal Mm -hmm. with it and she instead uh, regularly when she gets letters about people like this she gives a step-by-step process including scripts of how to fix the missing stare how to get that person either you know by creating boundaries or creating a process or a policy if you're in a place where like they're an employee or uh, that kind of thing where you can address the problem and she points out that okay by doing this doing this is not going to be comfortable doing this is going to be wildly uncomfortable you are not going to enjoy it but on the other hand you've got a choice between this fairly short period of uncomfortableness followed by at least something will change or you can continue to be slightly uncomfortable for the rest of your natural mm-hmm. lives. Which one is worse, yes. really? Because when you actually go through the process of thinking, okay, if we do address this, what's actually going to happen? Probably the building isn't going mm-hmm. to burn down. Like, maybe, but probably mm-hmm. not. Probably you're not actually going to die. So I, I love the way that she does that because uh, it is super. Yeah, I think too about, you know, sort of connecting it back to baptized in tear gas and I don't know my own sort of like conversion or transformation story. I think about now looking back how endlessly grateful I am for the people, for black folks in my life who were like, yeah, this attitude that you have is really harmful. Like it hurts me, you know, because if, if folks hadn't confronted me, then I would have continued on. And obviously Mm, nobody owes me education. Black folks don't owe white folks anything, uh, which is why I'm so, it would be like totally like if those people had just been like bye and ghosted and you know, there have been people in my life that I've hurt, um, who have done that. And I'm like, yeah, I get, I now looking back, I'm like, I get it. But even then, right, I'm like grateful for the lesson because I have gained so much from this sort of transformative journey that I'm on that like, yeah, it was like, it feels terrible to be confronted, to be like on the side of someone being like, oh, you harmed me. And this is like really messed up. Like that feels terrible. uh, Mm -hmm. But in the long term, it's really, it's actually very liberating, right? It's like an opportunity for growth. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking when you were talking about the queerness of this, right? Like the way that we're in relationship with each other and and talking about, you know, caring to confront as like kind of queer. I was thinking about how y'all have probably talked about this here before, but you know, like in cishet 
sort of dominant narrative scripts, there's like these roles that we that people fall into and you kind of go through these motions and it's just like you're on a conveyor belt for your life and you don't have as much, you know, opportunity to sort of like examine or reflect or like actually make choices. Mm-hmm. But so I think about how that plays out in relationships, right? Like in cishet relationships, it's like, oh, there's these gender roles and you do these things. But when I've been in relationships, you know, all my relationships are queer, right? Because I'm queer. But when I've been in relationships with other women, there's been this really cool thing that happens, which is the negotiation, right? There is no, I mean, there might be a little bit of some script, but there is no script, right? It's like the whole thing's just blown wide open. So then we can actually think and reflect about like, how do we want to be in this relationship together? Like what, what? what roles do we want to play or like what things are important to us? And I think, yeah, that's the, the sort of confronting people in general um, or confronting systems has that opportunity too to sort of like blow open the script and be like, I know I'm supposed to just play nice and like be okay with this hurt that's happening, but I instead am going to confront and then we have an opportunity to instead of, you know, instead of this script with my loved one where this person harms me I am so uncomfortable. I throw up every time before I see them. I, you know, text my other loved ones in that community and and vent and I'm stressed and I I don't sleep at night, right? That's the script that I had been doing, right? And the script was, mm-hmm. L, make yourself small, don't rock the boat. But when I refuse to continue sort of on that conveyor belt and be like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. It really, now we're in this, this, this space, right, where we, we blew up the script and we're in this space, right, where it's like, okay, now it's the renegotiation period after some a period of, you know, healing and a renegotiation period where you can say, okay, what do we want this to be like for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually reminds me of relationship anarchy Yes, as a practice. And actually, I believe our next episode, our deep dive is into relationship anarchy and love and kind of how that all plays out. So yeah. So cool. A preview. But yeah, the the idea that love does not have to look like one thing and relationships do not have to look like one thing. And we get to actually like be intentional and create what we want them to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we reach verses 19 and 20, we read, And by this we will know that we are from the truth, and will reassure our hearts before God whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows everything. So these verses remind us that love will remind us when we're doing the right thing, even if we are questioning and doubting ourselves. So a few months ago, I actually got to finally see the movie How to Train Your Dragon for the very first time, uh, because I finally had access to it through streaming. And uh, in that movie, which is a lot of fun, Hiccup realizes that he did the right thing by not killing Toothless the dragon immediately and, and is reminded of that. When Astrid reminds him that the rest of his village, like literally everyone he knows and has ever met, would have responded that way by killing Toothless the dragon right off the bat because he was weak and he was he was vulnerable at the time. And so she asks, so why didn't you? And he immediately knows the answer, which is a little more complicated because of the plot line. But the short version is basically he's more of a lover <laughs> than a fighter. Uh, and... <laughs> And it's a lovely moment where he is reminded that he's doing the right thing because the reason why he did it is love, Mm. ultimately. And I wish that we spent more time on these verses because I think we need to be reminded that when we question ourselves, are we doing the right thing, that the Bible literally tells us 
that we will know that we are doing the right thing when we are we are acting from love and that when people tell us that we are you know desecrating the bible and ruining the church and destroying the future of christianity <sighs> because of the things that we are doing Sorry. <laughs> and <laughs> that we can be reminded that we are acting from love we are acting in the interest of loving others and that is how god has said that we will know that we are doing the right Mm -hmm. thing yeah i think about alexia salvatiera who's a lutheran pastor she has a book called faith rooted organizing and one of the things she talks about is like why and how they do direct actions in particular is the idea that there is no one beyond the scope of God's love. And if that is true, instead of like the language that a lot of community organizing uses of targets, it is how do we invite this person into a new way of being? How do we invite them to a conversion of their heart? Mm -hmm. How do we make clear the actual dilemma and where love is in this situation? And I, yeah, I really like that. Yeah, which is also like a very like abolitionist framework, right? A very like... Mm -hmm the whole transformative restorative justice stuff where it's like, how can we, how can we create pathways back to each other? You know, how can we always make sure that there's the space for people to come back from being, you know, the worst thing that they ever did? How, how can we create these containers for our own evolution as humans and as communities? Yeah. Yeah. Our gospel reading for this episode is John chapter 10 verses 11 through 18. Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd with love for his sheep and the power to willingly lay down his life. I really love this reading. Well, there's a lot of reasons to love this reading. My grandma, June, who of blessed memory, mm-hmm. uh, who was a very faithful United Methodist who went to, she's like a really amazing woman. She, um, you know, was super smart and she actually graduated pharmacy school. You know, one of the few women to, to, go to pharmacy school at that time. And she graduated pharmacy school so young that she was legally too young to take the boards. So as she's waiting to take her pharmacy boards, just like casually goes to seminary for a little bit. So anyway, um, and she did like, she was, she was a faithful United Methodist and she did some faith-based community organizing and sort of like early anti-racism, like integration work. Anyway, she's really cool. She's a really cool woman. I miss her a lot. But anyway, this is one of her favorite verses. And I mm. remember this story that her pastor told me about these, her and these verses once. And I just think about it all the time. There was like a little, you know, like little old ladies United Methodist, like Bible study happening. And, you know, one of the little old ladies was like, you know, people who don't believe in Jesus go to hell because I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, blah, blah, blah. You know, really plucking that out of context. But, you know, that's a really, a lot of people interpret that that way. Mm-hmm. And my grandma, my grandma brought up this passage. Like as an argument against that, she said, Jesus also said, I have other sheeps that do, yes. do not belong to this fold. Yes. And I just like love, love thinking about, talking about like, you know, caring to confront I love like thinking of my like grandma in this like little small church United Methodist Church being like bringing up this verse and so it's just like special to me because of that I love that one too that's one of my favorite responses when people talk about I'm the way the truth and life or like those sorts of things is to say yeah and Jesus has other sheep and so I like 
pulled that verse out too because I always like to talk about it. And it helps us, right? It helps us as Christians to be able to have interfaith conversations yeah, and be in relationship with other people. And it, it can get problematic in like how we impose our understandings of God on other faiths, but yeah. from uh, pushing us and motivating us to think about other people and to think about the reality that God would actually engage and the divine and the source of all life would engage with everyone in different ways I think it's really helpful and the thing that it reminded me of when I was reading it this time was in Battlestar Galactica that there's they spend all of this time this is spoilers particularly for Kay because I know she hasn't watched the whole thing and I have now passed I actually have spoiled myself for the the series. Oh, perfect. So don't worry about it. But the idea is that the Cylons were actually a, the 13th colony, the 13th tribe, and so they are, in fact, other sheep in another pasture. They are, in fact, another tribe yeah. of the 12 original colonies. And and then that, like, throws the whole, like, human-Cylon relationship into a whole other confusing yeah. thing. Yes. In verse 11, we read Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I don't know that the first time that I read this, I made this connection, but I definitely made it this time around. Uh, The image that immediately popped into my mind was Aragorn at Helm's Deep, Mm -hmm. uh, surrounded by all these people who he didn't really know. But when Legolas says uh, in Elvish, so that the people surrounding them won't understand, that they should go because they have stuff to do and these people are about to pretty much all die, Aragorn shouts back at him in the human language that all those other people will understand, then I will die as one of them. Mm, a little bit awkward and for everybody listening in. <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot imagine the embarrassment of being Legolas in that moment. Holy cow. <laughs> I... <laughs> Like, how did he get through the next half hour? Because that has got to be completely miserable. (laughs) But also, it's this lovely moment of Aragorn deciding, you know, I, I recognize that we have stuff to do, and I theoretically am a king of a different country, and there's all this other stuff going on, and yes, that's all important, but also I'm still willing to lay down my life for these people, because this is where we are now, and they deserve it. It's like, it's a solidarity moment. It makes me think, too, about, like, Later on in this passage where, verse 18, where it's like Jesus says, no one takes it from me, I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And it reminds me kind of of a thing we were talking about earlier about the sort of like informed consent or choice consent sort of thing, right? Like it is one thing for people like a king, right? To be like, I am choosing to, you know, put myself in in danger or whatever, Um, And then, and that's like a really different thing than the people who don't have a choice, right? Who like get sort of, I don't know, who, who don't have a choice because the systems are making the choice. Right. And I think like, I feel like that's something really important to name because again, with this depolitization of scripture that we experience, um, a lot of times we look at stories of Jesus or, or just, you know, some other stories with no power analysis and it, we sort of then apply these to things that oppressed people quote unquote should do, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas Jesus in this situation is saying, okay, but I actually like have some God privilege here. Like I actually could stop all this. I have the power to lay it down and, and nobody is making me do this, right? I am freely choosing this solidarity, which is different than telling oppressed people, like, well, you should just be okay with being crucified or like, don't fight back because you know, oh, well, like that's, that's, it's a hugely different thing power wise to have the actual power to decide, 
you know, and to make these choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like to go back to Helm's Deep for mm-hmm. a moment. There's another scene shortly after that bit where they are arming not only the people who are going to be on the wall and in the battle, but they also uh, very briefly take a moment to arm some of those who are the non-combatants, mm-hmm. the pregnant mm-hmm. women, the children, the elderly, anyone who is more able, basically, uh, receive some kind of weapon. Not because they will be in the battle, but because, if necessary, they will be the last line Mm -hmm. of defense. And when Aragorn says that he's willing to enter the battle, that is a crowning moment of awesome, you might say, uh, because he's choosing it. It's a moment of courage, a moment of solidarity. When those people receive their weapons, it's a moment of despair. If they know that if they have to use those weapons, they are probably going to die. Uh, And that's very much the the situation that oppressed peoples are so often put in when they are dealing. They might have a last ditch option that could make some kind of change, but it's probably also going to get killed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really reminds me of the difference between, like, I don't know, white members of the NRA who are gun owners and then, like, I don't know the Black Panther Party or like arming, you know, black trans women or something. It's like, these are very different things. Like one, you know, one group lobbies like with white supremacist ideals to basically around protecting property and all, and all kinds of other like capitalist ideals. And others are like, yeah, I mean, it's called the Black Panther Party for self-defense because the idea is nobody else, like nobody else was protecting you know, black communities and the people who were quote unquote supposed to protect like the cops or whoever you're supposed to call for help were actually not only not protecting, but oftentimes like the aggressors harming them. And so it was like, Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, nobody like wants to be in this position where you're like, this is my only option. And, And the sin in that situation is like the, the sort of systemic way that we put people in those positions. Yeah. Yeah, odd how the NRA will happily come to the defense of someone who is found with a horrifying cache of weapons uh, outside a politician's home uh, when the politician is mm-hmm. a person of color and the, the person with the weapons is white. But yet, you know, said nothing about Philando Castillo. Legal, yeah. Yeah. A black legal gun owner gets killed for, you know, owning a perfectly legal weapon and Science. they didn't notice. Yeah. And yeah. I think, like, speaking of protection, I think that. That's part of what we get at with the shepherd and the sheep, right? Is this idea that the shepherd is choosing to protect the sheep and values the sheep in a different way than the hired hand. And so the choice to protect, that is a lot of, I think, a lot of the ways that we can do power analysis is to say, Mm -hmm. like, who is being protected and who is being protected from, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, in Divergent, they make this really clear when they go out to the fence to look at the fence. Right, and because Dauntless is the are the ones who protect the fence doesn't lock from the inside. The fence locks from the outside, and so Tris asks the question of like just in her head of who's being protected. Like, mm-hmm. are we trying to protect ourselves, or are we trying to keep people in and protect what's out there? Mm-hmm. And that's like that's very different perspective. And that's when we talk about the laws, when we talk about the NRA, when we talk about anybody mm-hmm. who are. Who and what are we trying to protect? And who and what do we think is a threat to be protected from? Yeah, yeah. I think about, too, the sort of idea of, like, um, you know, the the verse sort of, like, to whom much is given, much will be required, and how those of us who, like, have choices have obligations, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 
then the, the sort of like inverse of that is people who have had their choices taken away because of oppression, we should not, it would be wrong to put those same obligations on folks. I think about, I think a lot about this with principles of nonviolence, right? Like it is one thing for people to freely choose nonviolence for themselves as a tactic, either, you know, strategically or morally or for any other reason. And it is a really, really different thing to obligate other oppressed people into some sort of dominant idea of what nonviolence really is, right? Like actually that's like a coercive action that is inherently violent. It's inherently Mm -hmm. violent for people with power to tell marginalized people, you know, that they have obligations around anything when when their choices have been taken away. So I, I think about that a lot too, sort of in regards to, you know, how do we, how do we deal with oppression and, and state violence and some of these other topics? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Elle, any other thoughts on life, the universe and everything? One thing I am really noticing throughout a lot of these readings is how the sort of people who are, are on a mission, right? Part of a movement are, are really, really clear about their objectives, their like stake in it, the direction they want to go. Um, and I think about that, especially, you know, when I'm thinking about Jesus in this last reading or, or, you know, Peter and Acts and sort of the escalation that happens in the narrative. Again, when we sort of hyper-spiritualize the stories, it just seems like, wow, this story happened, then this story happened, then this story happened. We can really miss the escalation of like things, you know, the heat is on, like things mm-hmm. are getting more and more dangerous. Yeah. Things are getting more and more tense. And one thing I really notice is sort of as the narrative goes on, this tension is building and so in those moments, right, when we see like farewell discourse or, or other moments of high tension, I really see Jesus or, or Peter getting really, really clear about message, being really, really clear about like why they're there and mission. And that reminds me a lot of a lot of the organizers I know. Again, it's like really helps me relate to these, these like characters in scripture to think about how, you know, if I'm in like a tense situation you know, at a riot line or something at a demonstration, like it's really, really important that my leaders and the people next to me are really clear on why they're there and what they're about. Mm-hmm. And that maybe we have slightly different reasons, but we better be going in the same direction. And I think that's like an important thing to keep in mind too, ministry wise or, or preaching wise, like people who are listening to this sort of like forming their sermons of like, okay, so things, you know, in life, in society, in whatever, things are escalating. Summer's coming. Things are going to continue to escalate around race. I have this really horrible story about when we were in Ferguson during the uprising and some of the young activists were asking some of the older, more seasoned activists, like, how do we keep our movement going? Um, And the answer that these activists who, who had grown up in the civil rights era the answer to how do we keep this movement going, they said, um, was you don't have to, the police will do it for you. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think about that, particularly for pastors, you know, white pastors in particular, summer is coming it's getting closer and closer. Things are going to continue to escalate. And so we need to do our job to be really, really clear on mission and clear on our story, clear on our stake. And really articulate that to our people. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say, sort of, you know, on that sort of train of thought. I was going to say, speaking of being clear on mission. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I think I mentioned earlier that all of the money that I would make from baptizing tear gas is being redistributed to 
activists and liberation organizations and political prisoners and bail funds and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the book's not out yet. So what I have is my advance. And so I've redistributed the advance and I wanted to plug a couple, you know, a few of the places where I have redistributed that advance. And in the future, hopefully one day, you know, knock on wood, when, when the book makes money, then <laughs> I'll be able to redistribute to more places like that, more bail funds, more um, activists, more organizations. But I wanted to let you in on some of the places that I did redistribute these funds to. And one of them is Seoul, Southsiders Organized Green Indian Liberation, which is the org that I'm on the board for and kind of my activism home here in Chicago. I also donated to Action St. Louis, which is led by one of the activists that I met in the Ferguson Uprising, Kayla Reed, and is part of the Coalition of the Movement for Black Lives. Um, and then both the, the actual, the first advance that I got, so you kind of get like an advance when you sign a contract and then you get an advance when you actually, you know, write a book, like finish <laughs> the book and turn it in. Um, and the first advance right. I got actually went to... Um, Mike Brown's mother's organization, uh, the Michael O.D. Brown We Love Our Sons and Daughters Foundation, and Michael Brown's father's organization, Chosen for Change. Uh, and I also set up a reoccurring payment for uh, Kit Ferguson, Josh, uh, who is a political prisoner because of the Ferguson uprising, and also also sent some money to, to the bond fund. So uh, the rest of the money has been given directly to, to activists and particularly activists whose either stories are shared with permission in the book or who have made like a particular impact on my life. But I wanted to let you all know about those, um, those organizations, especially in case you are looking for a way that you want to plug in and get involved. And these are, these are really great places to do that. Yep, we will link to those organizations in our episode description, as well as a link to Elle and where you can buy Elle's book, so that if you want to support them directly, you can, and if you want to support through purchasing Elle's book and support that work, you can also do that. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Elle, and thanks for joining us, listeners. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the fifth Sunday of Easter. This podcast has been produced by us, Emily Ewing, and Kay Roloff. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H, Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our full guest episodes and interviews, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that, though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pax Vobiscum.